Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. Theodore Roosevelt was a titan of American politics, society, and culture. Rarely soft-spoken, always eager to brandish a big stick, and animated by an inexhaustible energy, Roosevelt used his considerable might to leave an indelible mark on the United States. As a trust buster, Roosevelt forever altered American attitudes toward corporate monopolies. As a conservationist, Roosevelt left a legacy of stewardship over the nation's natural resources. As a statesman in Jingo, Roosevelt expanded the United States' global reach and international standing. And as a cultural icon, Roosevelt's maxims, disposition, and image permeated American life, defining a rugged American masculinity for generations to come. Roosevelt's impact in these arenas is well documented in the existing historiography. Hundreds of scholarly works examine nearly every aspect of his life and career. Virtually absent from this vast literature, however, is an understanding of Roosevelt's role in constructing the foundations of the modern United States Navy. William P. Lehman and John B. Hattendorf's edited volume, Forging the Trident, Theodore Roosevelt and the United States Navy, published by Naval Institute Press, fills that gap. Tracing Roosevelt's trajectory from naval enthusiast to naval historian, to visionary architect of the early 20th century United States Navy, to commander-in-chief of the Great White Fleet. Forging the Trident reveals the extent to which Roosevelt's outsized personality shaped both the course of American naval affairs and the very character of the Navy itself. A significant contribution to the Roosevelt historiography, Lehman and Hattendorf's erudite volume opens up previously uncharted waters to greater historical scrutiny. Joining me today to talk about the book, and about all things Roosevelt and the United States Navy, is one of Forging the Trident's editors, William Lehman. Bill, welcome to New Books in Military History. Thanks, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Can you start off by giving us a a potted bio and tell us what acted as the catalyst for this volume? Sure. So I'm a history professor at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. And really what brought about the project was... Uh, meeting Professor John Hattendorf of the Naval War College, which is also located here in Newport. And John and I actually met at a a Naval History Conference at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis several years ago, have kind of kept in touch along the way. And one of the things that I ended up discovering is that there, there is this significant gap in the literature on both Theodore Roosevelt and the U.S. Navy. And what first made me notice this gap was using a book entitled FDR and the U.S. Navy, and it was edited by Edward Marolda. And essentially what this book did was follow Franklin Roosevelt's lifelong interaction with the Navy. It was an edited book, a collection of essays by leading historians of the U.S. Navy. And I thought it was a great book, and it made me wonder is there something like this for Theodore Roosevelt? And I ended up doing a library search. I didn't find anything. 
having lunch with John Hattendorf one day, I just kind of brought it up to him. He has a very extensive personal library of naval history books. And I figured if he didn't know of anything like this, then it probably didn't exist. And he didn't. He wasn't aware of a book that traced Theodore's uh, lifelong interaction with the Navy. So kind of just in that moment, I said, do you want to fill the gap? Do you want to do you want to do a book like this? And he said, yes. And, and that's pretty much what led to the book's creation. Now, we mentioned this in the intro, and as you just noted, Forging the Trident is an edited work. The chapters in which roughly parallel Roosevelt's trajectory from naval enthusiast to historian to architect of the United States Navy to commander-in-chief of the Great White Fleet. And there are four major themes that really jumped out to me that seemed to tie the various chapters together. History the human element, meaning in this instance, professionally and a professionally and technically competent officer and enlisted corps, naval technology, and the American people themselves. And Roosevelt seems really knit these themes together in a manner that, to my mind anyway, is perfectly symbolized by the trident referred to in the book's title. You know, the officers and enlisted men, the technology and the American people each constitute one prong, and they're all joined together by history. So I'd like to start with that first theme of history. When did Roosevelt first become interested in America's naval heritage? And how did he come to understand its utility as a tool for building a powerful Navy? Right. So so Roosevelt was someone who always had a lifelong his, uh, interest in history in general. I would say his interest in naval history in particular began in childhood when he was listening to the sea stories, the naval adventures of his two maternal uncles, both served as naval officers in the Confederate Navy during the Civil War. And the more famous of those two uncles was James D. Bullock, who really his big claim to fame is that he served as the Confederate naval agent working with the British. And he he's most responsible for the construction of the Confederate commerce raider, the CSS Alabama which did a great deal of damage to Union shipping over the course of the Civil War. So from boyhood, Theodore Roosevelt really was fascinated with these stories that he would hear, hear from his uncles, and, and it really sparked that interest in naval history. He kept that interest all the way up through uh, his college years at Harvard, and when it came time to, for him to do an original research project at Harvard, Theodore Roosevelt chose to do an in-depth study of the Naval War of 1812. So the naval operations conducted during the War of 1812 between the British and the Americans. And this was something that Roosevelt set out to do because in his mind, he wanted to basically produce a, a study of the naval operations in the War of 1812 that lacked the bias that he saw in earlier studies of the war. And so Roosevelt ended up starting this research project. There's some disagreement over, was this his senior thesis or was this just an independent research project? But he starts it at Harvard. He becomes truly fascinated by the research and, and he decides to continue it after he graduates from Harvard. And that initial research um, during his undergraduate days forms the basis for his first book, which is entitled The Naval War of 1812. So for Roosevelt, I really think it's this moment, this research on the War of 1812, that really opens his eyes to, to the power and the authority of history 
to be applied to a policy situation in his own time. Because that's what Roosevelt is ultimately very adept at throughout his throughout his political career, is that he's very good at using naval history, America's naval heritage, to educate the public, the press, his fellow politicians about the importance of naval power. And then by educating uh, the American people about that, he's able to use that to gain support, particularly support with his fellow politicians, for growing and developing American naval power once he's in a policy position as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and then, of course, during his presidency. But I really think it goes back to that, that initial research he does on the War of 1812, that for Roosevelt, while he certainly while he certainly loves doing history as an intellectual or academic exercise in its own right for him history is much more than just an academic discipline it is a way to illuminate issues that can therefore inform his policy making and and it really begins during that period and in a lot of ways when we're talking about the war of 1812 for roosevelt the big lesson that he takes out of that, out of his study of that war is how unprepared the United States was to take on the British Navy during the War of 1812. And Roosevelt will put really a, a significant amount of blame on specifically President Thomas Jefferson in the years before the War of 1812 for not recognizing the importance of having a, a strong, powerful Navy composed mainly of frigates. Jefferson was not a proponent of having a large, powerful Navy. Jefferson's naval policy actually focused a great deal on these small gunboats that were really just designed for coastal and harbor defense. And for Roosevelt, he really has quite a bit of scorn, I guess we could say, towards Jefferson for that naval policy and and essentially argues that the United States was completely unprepared for the War of 1812 because of Jefferson's short-sighted naval policy. And, and Roosevelt certainly acknowledges the great victories that the United States will experience at sea during the War of 1812, well, both at sea and on the Great Lakes. So if you think of something like the great um, victory of USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, against HMS Guerrier, that was considered one of the greatest naval victories in American history, the victories on Lake Erie and Lake Champlain. Roosevelt acknowledges those victories, takes a great deal of pride in those victories. But what he ultimately argues is that, yes, a small, well-trained naval officer corps commanding well-built ships can have an important impact. He still argues that because of Jefferson's naval policy and lack of preparedness, that the situation could have ended up a lot worse for the United States. So the Naval War of 1812 is really where, where Roosevelt gets this idea about using history as a way to inform policymaking. Roosevelt's work as a naval historian, which you mentioned he was attempting to be as unbiased as as possible, but his work also seems to almost always be leavened with a quite healthy dose of romanticism. And I know we're jumping the chronology here a little bit, but there's perhaps no greater illustration of that tendency than his efforts to have the remains of Revolutionary War hero John Paul Jones reinterred from France. Can you speak a little bit about this episode and how, if at all, Roosevelt mixed myth with fact to create a public perception surrounding American naval heritage? Yes. So 
So the whole story of the return of John Paul Jones to the United States, it really is one of the great stories of Roosevelt's presidency, I feel. It's certainly one that, that I've enjoyed researching, writing about, and talking about. So giving a little bit of the background information, John Paul Jones, of course, is still is the most celebrated American naval officer of the Revolutionary War, uh, somebody who originally hailed from Scotland, had begun a maritime career in the merchant service for a short time, actually had even served on a slave ship, found that very distasteful. So, so he stopped doing that and went back to the merchant fleet. But Jones ultimately gets himself into a little bit of trouble. He comes to the United States at the time, was of course the American colonies of Great Britain, ends up in America kind of looking for a job right as the Revolutionary War is, is getting up and running and ends up becoming an officer in the brand new Continental Navy. And of course, Jones goes on to an exciting, distinguished career as, as a captain in the Continental Navy. He really becomes most famous for his successful kind of one-on-one -on -one naval duels with a couple of British ships. He's also famous for raiding the British coastline during the Revolutionary War, kind of bringing a distant colonial war to the front doorsteps of British civilians. So Jones has this distinguished American career, and Jones is somebody certainly who had this romantic notion about naval power, and he hoped given the long maritime history of the American colonies, uh, he hoped that the United States was going to become a, a great naval power now that it had won its independence from Britain. And it was Jones's ambition, really, to, to become the U.S. Navy's first admiral. And so he hoped that he would be the admiral commanding a large, powerful, well-educated, well-trained fleet. And that doesn't end up happening. So at the end of the, the Revolutionary War, there's really no interest among American political leaders for that kind of Navy. And the Continental Congress actually ends up selling off their remaining Continental Navy ships at auction in Philadelphia. And so John Paul Jones is disappointed in his ambitions, kind of leaves America in a huff because his fellow Americans aren't embracing his vision of naval power, ends up serving as a rear admiral in the, the Russian Navy under Catherine the Great. That only lasts for a short time. By the time we get to the early 1790s, Jones had moved to Paris, and he ends up dying in the early 1790s, kind of bitter and alone in many ways. And, and he's buried in an unmarked grave in a small Protestant cemetery on the outskirts of Paris. And, and he's kind of forgotten about, really, by the American people. And it takes really almost 100 years for Americans to actually start thinking about John Paul Jones again. And the person who, who does start thinking about him again, one of his great, greatest admirers, is Civil War General Horace Porter. Horace Porter was someone who uh, he was an officer in the Union Army during the Civil War. He was on Ulysses S. Grant's staff at one point during the Civil War. And, and Porter was uh, an admirer of John Paul Jones. And when Porter becomes the United States ambassador to France in the 1890s, he sort of sets out to, to find John Paul Jones. And he initiates this, this archival research project because he wants to find John Paul Jones's grave. Porter believes that uh, the American people kind of forgetting about Jones, that this was a disgrace. This was a form of dishonor. 
And so, so Porter sets out first researching in the archives. And then once he has found the location of where he thinks Jones is buried, he kind of takes on this archaeological dig to find John Paul Jones's remains. And, and he ultimately does. In 1905, he does find, he does find John Paul Jones's remains. And he keeps, uh, by that point, of course, Theodore Roosevelt is president. Porter keeps Roosevelt informed about his progress. And ultimately, once John Paul Jones's remains are found, they are positively identified by a couple of medical anthropologists at a university in Paris. And, and this is great news for Theodore Roosevelt, because in Theodore Roosevelt's mind, this is just just a perfect discovery for him on a couple of levels. And the reason I say that is because, as we've talked about, Roosevelt loved to educate people, excite people about American naval history and heritage, and and to use that as a way to gain public support. And what Roosevelt sees is that John Paul Jones could be sort of like the poster boy for achieving the level of American naval power that Roosevelt wants to achieve. Because in many ways, Jones's vision that he had back during the Revolutionary War, his vision of a large American fleet composed of first-rate frigates commanded by highly professional officers, that's essentially Theodore Roosevelt's vision as well. Roosevelt wants a large battleship navy commanded by highly professional officers and manned by a well-trained enlisted force. And so Roosevelt sees this as a great opportunity to have this exciting historical figure to use as a way to gain public support. And it's also really exciting for Roosevelt as well, because there's nothing that Roosevelt likes more than an elaborate military ceremony or military pageantry. And so this gives Roosevelt an opportunity really to to put on a big show, to be theatrical, and Roosevelt very quickly decides that the United States is going to bring John Paul Jones's remains back to the United States. And, and Roosevelt decides there's only one place where, where Jones should be buried. And that one place is at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. And at that time, the Naval Academy was undergoing a, an extensive period of construction, the building the, what is now the modern campus at the U.S. Naval Academy. And so this would also give Roosevelt not only the opportunity to glorify John Paul Jones, but it also gives Roosevelt a great opportunity to to sort of show off the Naval Academy's new grand campus. And and so that's what Roosevelt is ultimately going to do. And and for Roosevelt, he really sees um, this John Paul Jones ceremony that's going to end up happening in 1906. And eventually, John Paul Jones will end up being buried in a large marble sarcophagus in the crypt beneath the Naval Academy's new chapel. And that's where he is to the present day. But it's all very much an attempt on Roosevelt's part to give the United States a hero of the magnitude of Lord Horatio Nelson. Lord Nelson, of course, is the great Royal Navy hero from the Napoleonic Wars, considered the greatest British naval officer in history, Lord Nelson is buried beneath St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And this is basically the, an opportunity for the United States to do the same thing and to have John Paul Jones sort of become the, the American Nelson. 
to a large extent. And, and so that's what Roosevelt does. He has this big elaborate ceremony, thousands of people uh, at the Naval Academy in 1906. Roosevelt gives this speech at this ceremony where he essentially depicts John Paul Jones as the Navy's patron saint. And, and as you pointed out in your question, this requires quite a bit of reinterpretation about John Paul Jones's historical reputation. Before this point, John Paul Jones was not really seen as a professional role model for American naval officers. I mean, the Navy certainly acknowledged Jones's skill as a combat leader during the Revolution, but he wasn't really someone that the Navy wanted officers to to idolize or to pattern their professional behavior on. Jones was somebody who was really much more the swashbuckling naval mercenary. He was hot-tempered, had a reputation for being promiscuous, kind of had a prickly personality. And so for naval officers in the 19th century, their role models were more people like Edward Preble or Stephen Decatur, not not John Paul Jones who was not seen as really a professional naval officer. Roosevelt really changes that. And Roosevelt holds Jones out to be kind of the the prototypical American professional officer in many ways. And, And he encourages midshipmen to study Jones's life, study Jones's battles, and to follow Jones's example. That was one of the points of putting him at the Naval Academy. So that in the words of one historian who has studied this, that midshipmen could have a more direct veneration of the Navy's patron saint, but Jones was actually buried on the campus. So it really is it really is an interesting story about how Roosevelt does that. And what's funny about it is, I mean, Roosevelt, of course, is a naval historian. He had written about John Paul Jones previously. And before this point, Roosevelt really didn't think that much of Jones. He he basically thought of him as a glorified pirate more than anything else. And so Roosevelt kind of goes back on his own earlier interpretation of Jones and and now creates this this new persona and this new reimagining, really, of John Paul Jones to meet his own purposes. Now, going back in time, rejoining the, uh, the chronology, Roosevelt gets his first real taste of power in relation to the Navy during his stint as Assistant Secretary of the Navy from 1897 to 98. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this episode. You know, he refers to his charge up San Juan Hill as his crowded hour, but this really seems to be his crowded year where he does a lot to lay the groundwork for the modern U.S. Navy. Is that kind of a fair assessment of of his time in this position? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you talk about when you talk about Roosevelt and period leading up to and then during the Spanish-American War, of course, what everybody thinks about first is his time with the Rough Riders. So his military experience in Cuba. And I don't mean to minimize that. I mean, Roosevelt himself talks about his time with the Rough Riders as a transformative experience in his life. And it's certainly the fame he gets from that, uh, which, I mean, came from the fact that he brought reporters with him everywhere he went. But the fame that he gets from that certainly propels him to the governorship of New York and then ultimately to the vice presidency and then the presidency. But if you actually look at where is Roosevelt's most significant contribution during this period, it is not as Colonel of the Rough Riders. It is his time as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And even though he is only in that office for a relatively short amount of time, certainly 
he has a profound impact on the Navy during that period. And for Roosevelt, this is really his, his chance to take theory and put it into practice. So by the time he becomes Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1897, certainly he is very familiar with naval history. As we've talked about, he has this lifelong interest in the Navy and naval history. So now he's finally in a position where he can take the lessons that he's learned from his historical work and put them into practice. And again, that number one lesson is preparedness. That is the big lesson that he took out of the War of 1812 from his book about that. And it's preparedness that is really going to be the hallmark of Roosevelt's time as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And most famously, or the most famous example of that is there's this one day where his boss, Secretary of the Navy John D. Long, is out of the office. And so Roosevelt is is the acting secretary. And there's kind of this funny line that Roosevelt sends to a friend of his. And he says something like, the secretary isn't in today and I'm having immense fun running the Navy. But one of the things that Roosevelt did was he sent an order to Commodore George Dewey, who commanded what was known as the Asiatic Squadron at the time, and basically ordered Dewey that if if war was declared against Spain, and I mean, at this point, the tensions, the tensions between the United States and Spain over Cuba were certainly were certainly on the rise. Roosevelt ordered Dewey, in the event of a declaration of war against Spain, Dewey should take his squadron to the Philippines and destroy the Spanish squadron at Manila Bay. And ultimately, that's exactly what ends up happening. Once war is declared between the United States and Spain, Dewey sails his squadron to Manila Bay. Manila Bay ends up becoming one of the greatest naval victories in American history. And and even though certainly Dewey rightly becomes a great naval hero from that victory and certainly is lauded by the public for it, it was really Theodore Roosevelt as assistant secretary who put all that into motion based on this lesson about preparedness that, that he had learned from his, his, his historical work. And, and even aside from the Dewey Manila Bay example, the U.S. Navy's performance throughout the Spanish-American War which universally received high marks from the American people, it was thanks in large part to Roosevelt's emphasis on training and professionalism. And so, and so that really is Roosevelt's real legacy when it comes to, comes to the Spanish-American War. He's also able, from that position, to, to do things to directly advance his navalist agenda. So certainly... The Dewey example is part of that, but even in more of an institutional sense, Roosevelt took a special interest in what was going on at the Naval Academy, took a special interest in what was going on at the Naval War College, because Roosevelt realized you could have the finest ships anywhere in the world, but if you don't have a highly trained, well-educated officer corps, those ships are useless. So naval education was something that Roosevelt took a great deal of interest in, both as assistant secretary and then later as president. So, so Roosevelt very much is kind of at the, the forefront of this intellectual movement or intellectual revolution going on within the Navy, an intellectual revolution that very much is wrapped up with Alfred Thayer Mahan and, and his path-breaking work on strategy. 
Roosevelt is very much a part of that and is crucial at taking that intellectual revolution and putting it into concrete, practical, actual policies. Now, naval officers and enlisted men, it seems, were more than just the human element of the fleet for Roosevelt. They were symbols of the vigorous, democratic, and masculine American fighting man, you know, living, breathing advertisements for American ascendancy and the vitality of the American system itself. Was this conception of the Navy's human element a substantive tool in advancing Roosevelt's naval ambitions, or was it simply another element in his PR campaign? I would say, I would say certainly is a public relations aspect to it, but yeah, I do think it is very much tied to his goals of advancing American naval power. And to a large extent, you see it in, in my chapter in the book that deals with Roosevelt's reforms in the area of naval education. Roosevelt in general was a proponent of, of what he called the strenuous life. And the strenuous life had a lot of different applications for Roosevelt. So partly the strenuous life is his own personal doctrine about physical fitness and and testing oneself and engaging in various kinds of physical activity, whether it would be organized sports or hiking or hunting, being in the outdoors. Roosevelt was a great outdoorsman. So there is that aspect of the strenuous life. The strenuous life was also applied to to Roosevelt's foreign policy and his worldview. So the strenuous life could also apply to nations. And so he believed that not only should American men pursue the strenuous life in a personal sense and engage in these sports and these outdoor activities and constantly testing themselves and pushing themselves to their limits, but the United States as a nation also has to as well. And, and so I think we need to look at it in both of those ways. And, and you can certainly see that when, when we talk about Roosevelt and naval education. So if you look at Roosevelt's attitude towards the Naval Academy, and this applies to West Point as well. I mean, Roosevelt was a, a huge fan of the nation's academies during this period. So he spent a lot of time at both the Naval Academy in Annapolis and the United States Military Academy at West Point. And, and Roosevelt, in a lot of ways, he, he thought the academies were the most distinctly American and de- small d democratic institutions in America. And um, he actually has a, the term he uses, absolutely American. And, and what he meant by that was that these academies took young men from all regions of the country, all social classes, all walks of life, and brought them to the academy and converted them from civilian life to, to highly professional officers by the time they graduated. And once a young man made it to Annapolis or West Point, the only thing that mattered once they were there was merit, their performance. So their academic performance in the classroom, their physical performance, their athletic performance, their military training performance. That is what determined what their class rank would be ultimately. And so the academies in Roosevelt's mind are kind of like the ultimate meritocracy. It doesn't matter if a cadet or a midshipman is from a rich family or a poor family. It doesn't matter if they're from the Northeast or they're from the rural Midwest. 
um, what mattered was their performance. And so for Roosevelt, that made the academies very special institutions for the United States. And, and in many ways, you can see Roosevelt applying his views about the strenuous life to the academies. And so, for example, Roosevelt was a, a, a huge supporter of athletics at the academies. When he was assistant secretary of the Navy, he actually played a role in restoring the, the annual Army-Navy football game, which, of course, is still one of the one of the great classics of college sports uh, every year. But the Army-Navy game had actually been canceled by President Grover Cleveland because it had, in his, in Cleveland's opinion, it had disrupted the routine at the academies. Things had gotten a little rowdy and out of control. And, and so Cleveland had, had gotten rid of the Army-Navy game. It was Roosevelt, uh, when he was assistant secretary, that ended up writing to the Secretary of War and basically made arrangements to bring the Army-Navy game back as an annual tradition. And then Roosevelt himself as president, he ended up attending the game as well. But Roosevelt was somebody who saw athletics as a, a major part of the academy experience because the competition, the strenuous nature of sports, the teamwork, that that was not only great for physical fitness, but it was also great for developing leadership skills to a large extent. And, and so for Roosevelt, you see this, the strenuous life on a personal level as it's applied to cadets, midshipmen, and officers, that's important for the strenuous life on a national or international level, because ultimately those officers are going to be carrying out a robust foreign policy. And so for Roosevelt, all those ideas about the strenuous life, it isn't just this personal way of living your own life. It also is a way for the United States to conduct itself on the world stage. And the Navy in Roosevelt's mind would be, would be a major part of that. Now, you mentioned previously that in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was a robust intellectual revolution going on in the United States Navy, you know, most notably with, as you mentioned, Alfred Thayer Mahan. At the same time, there was also a period of rapid technological change in the Navy in naval affairs generally, a, a large, a rapid technological change during this period, you know, perhaps most notably with the launch of HMS Dreadnought in 1906. And it seems throughout the book that in the chapters that deal with this period in Roosevelt's career, that he kind of sits at the nexus where this intellectual revolution and technological revolution all intersect and occupying that space puts Roosevelt into in the middle of a conflict between Mahan and perhaps maybe the more old guard officers and thinkers and more forward-looking, more progressive futurists like Sims. Can you speak a little bit about this conflict and, and Roosevelt's role in it? Right. So yeah, to a large extent, Roosevelt does sort of sort of become enmeshed in this competition with Mahan on the one hand and, and Mahan's generation of naval officers, and then kind of the up and coming younger officers who, while recognizing Mahan's importance in, in a larger sense, like Mahan's importance to the study of strategy, also came to believe that particularly 
once we were into the 20th century that some of Mahan's ideas were kind of growing a, a little bit stale and that maybe he wasn't he wasn't keeping quite up to date in his ideas and and so Roosevelt does sort of does sort of become become enmeshed in that to to a large extent but there is there is certainly this this cross section between the the modern technology aspect of what is going on in the navy and and this intellectual revolution and what's interesting in a lot of ways for Roosevelt is is he has this personal fascination with both both the intellectual aspect of it and the modern technology aspect of it so there are many stories about Roosevelt just being fascinated with ships and submarines and and Roosevelt very much supports kind of the new up and coming technology. So if we're talking about the submarine, there's this pretty well publicized event where Roosevelt observes exercises involving the submarine plunger off of Long Island and Roosevelt ends up going down in a dive with the submarine. And Roosevelt even is someone who, when he found out about the aviation experiments by Samuel Langley, it was Roosevelt who said that the military in general and the Navy in particular, they need to get in on these experiments. They need to, they need to learn more about aviation to learn about what possible applications that it might have to warfare. And so Roosevelt is definitely, he's definitely someone who fully embraces the move of the younger officers within the officer corps, he firmly embraces their move towards modern technology. And I guess what we could say is new weapons platforms that are going to become available as technology advances. But Roosevelt also very much still respects the whole idea of the intellectual revolution going on within the Navy. So for example, if we're talking about Mahan, Roosevelt is a huge supporter of the Naval War College. Roosevelt assisted when when some officers within the Navy tried to eliminate the Naval War College. Roosevelt gave advice to the War College president about how he can kind of push back those attacks on the Naval War College. Roosevelt certainly had a great deal of respect for Mahan, certainly was good at using Mahan and Mahan's fame that Mahan ends up getting from uh, his influential book. Roosevelt uses Mahan's kind of celebrity status to further his own policy agenda for building up American naval power. Roosevelt also very much recognizes the importance of educating officers in strategy, using history as as a teaching tool for developing strategic principles. He certainly is in favor of the war games that go on at the Naval War College. For Roosevelt, the war college and that intellectual aspect of officership, that is one of the keys to preparedness for the United States going forward. So in many ways, Roosevelt is sort of this bridge figure. On the one hand, he is still very much tied to Mahan and that war college camp that emphasized strategy and preparedness, but he is also very much tied to to the younger officers who are pushing all all kinds of new forms of naval technology as a way to make the U.S. Navy more effective. Roosevelt's work forging the Trident, as it were, culminates in the cruise of the Great White Fleet during the final years of his presidency. And obviously, I think 
you know, the fleet is intended as an announcement to other world powers that the United States has come of age. But I was wondering what, if any, impact did the fleet have on American perceptions and understanding of the Navy and its significance to them as a people and as a nation? Certainly, it, it served a great public relations role for, for Roosevelt in his quest to achieve public support for strengthening American naval power. So ultimately, what Roosevelt's goal was, was to make the United States the number two naval power in the world after Great Britain. And so for him, the Great White Fleet serves that goal in, in multiple ways. In a more practical way, it's a way for Roosevelt to show to other naval powers within the world, and he's particularly concerned um, in many ways about Japan, but it's a way for him to actually show the naval powers of the world, hey, look at what the United States is capable of at this point. Look at the quality of our battleships at this point in his presidency. It was a way for Roosevelt, as you said, to kind of show the world that the United States has arrived as a world naval power. But the Great White Fleet is also something that Roosevelt uses in, in a little bit more of a theatrical sense to excite the public. So, so, for example, the ships where the name Great White Fleet comes from, the ships were painted from their normal sort of battleship gray color to this pristine white color. And so the ships, sort of their appearance was meant to, to excite the public and and make them sort of like a sight to see rather than this dull gray color they're this gleaming white color and and roosevelt even certainly ties the great white fleet to various kinds of like pageantry kind of events so when the great white fleet goes off there's an event when the great white fleet comes back there's there's an exciting event roosevelt ensured that the great white fleet received a great deal of press coverage while it was while it was on its voyage and so for Roosevelt, it really brings together the, those two motivations. On the one hand, it is this announcement to the world in a foreign policy sense that the United States has arrived as a, a naval power and the United States is a force to be reckoned with and American battleships are a force to be reckoned with. On the other side of the coin, he's also using the Great White Fleet as a way to get the public excited about America's naval capability and as a way to stoke public pride in, in this American naval capability that exists by the end of his presidency. Now, you mentioned Japan, who one of the contributors notes is the, the main target for the message that's being sent by the Great White Fleet. And I want to preface this next question by stating that, you know, Roosevelt was a product of his time, as is every human being. But there is an undeniable racial dimension to Roosevelt's naval policy that seems pretty evident in this period. Did the racial prejudices of the American public and indeed of Roosevelt himself have a hand in shaping the intent behind the Great White Fleet? Or was this simply just real politique on a geopolitical scale? I would say personally, I think it's more the latter. I think it really is. I think what Roosevelt's top priority regarding using the Great White Fleet as, as a form of deterrence against the Japanese, I think it has far more to do with international power politics than it does with the racial prejudices of the American people. And the reason I say that is because Roosevelt at various times had actually spoken of the Japanese 
with admiration. Roosevelt was was someone who was very impressed by the Japanese naval victories of the Russo-Japanese War. And and that's actually what what got Roosevelt thinking about the Japanese so much is that that the Japanese performance in battle against the Russians was something that very much impressed him to the point where Roosevelt even ended up settling the Russo-Japanese War at the famous Portsmouth Conference. So for Roosevelt, in his mind, he sees the Japanese as a potential threat to American interests in the Pacific. So during this period, the United States has the Philippines as a very important colony. The United States has the Hawaiian Islands as well. And so for Roosevelt, when he looks at Japan, particularly with Japan on the rise in the wake of the Russo-Japanese War, he sees Japan as a threat to American interests in the Pacific. And that is really what is the motivating factor behind his use of the Great White Fleet to deter Japan. It's really not so much about their race. In his mind, it's about the Japanese are a rising power in the Pacific. That potentially threatens America's standing in the Pacific. So that's why Roosevelt is directing that level of attention to Japan. One of the contributors that that deals with the Great White Fleet and specifically its geopolitical intent argues that ultimately it didn't really achieve what Roosevelt wanted. In the long term, it didn't dissuade Japan's ill intent towards the United States. But is there an argument to be made that it did at least buy the United States some time to build the Navy to a greater extent and also focus, as you said, the United States's geopolitical attention in an area that it was beginning to be cognizant of because of its possessions, but maybe, you know, wasn't as involved with as it, as it should have been? Yeah, I would, I would certainly say that that Japan's sort of emergence onto the world scene, it, it's definitely something that does focus America's tension on that region to an extent that it had not previously. So the United States, of course, had only recently taken possession of the Philippines. So the Philippines came into America's possession as a result of the Spanish-American War in 1898. The Hawaiian Islands as well, separately from the Spanish-American War, but going on at the same time, the Hawaiian Islands ended up being annexed by the United States in 1898 as well. So it, it really is kind of new for the United States to be to be looking at the Pacific as an area of strategic importance. So the combination of the United States gaining control of those Pacific territories, and then in the early 20th century, Japan kind of bursting onto the world scene as a result of the Russo-Japanese War, that does certainly have an effect on the United States focusing more attention on that region. And then Roosevelt's use of the Great White Fleet as as having some deterrent value against Japan that further solidifies this idea that the Pacific is an area that the United States needs to pay attention to going forward. So yes, I certainly I certainly agree that even though obviously it wasn't deterred in the sense that Japan does of course down the road end up attacking Pearl Harbor and engaging in in various territorial expansion uh, in Asia and the Pacific leading up to that. So yes, it didn't work as a deterrent, but yes, I would say it definitely worked in terms of focusing American te- attention on this region of the world as something that is important to the United States going forward. 
Now, ultimately, it's argued in the final chapter penned by Craig Simons that TR's vision for a powerful, technologically dominant Navy capable of projecting unassailable American power to any part of the globe only really comes to fruition with the presidency of his fifth cousin and later nephew, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the passage of the Two Oceans Navy Act in 1940. Would that legislation and indeed FDR's support for it have been possible without the groundwork initially done by Theodore? No, I don't think so. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, he is the person who is most responsible for the emergence of the United States as a great naval power at the beginning of the 20th century. And Roosevelt absolutely deserves credit for laying the groundwork for not only the victory in World War II, but I would also say just the dominant role of the United States Navy throughout the 20th century. It's Theodore Roosevelt who who puts so much emphasis on naval education, training, the embracing of modern technology, building up the size of the fleet, personnel reforms to make the Navy more efficient and to make sure that the officers commanding the Navy are chosen because of merit uh, rather than just seniority. And even even in a more direct sense, that generation of naval heroes from World War II, people like Admiral Nimitz, Halsey, King, Spruance, those naval heroes, they came of age in in the Navy that Theodore Roosevelt created. And they were all at the Naval Academy when Theodore Roosevelt was either vice president or president. And in many ways, once they graduated from the Academy, went out into the Navy, started having their naval careers, they're having those careers in the Navy that Theodore Roosevelt, that Theodore Roosevelt ultimately created. So in many ways, that is Roosevelt's greatest legacy is that he laid the groundwork for America's naval performance in World War II and then certainly beyond in the 20th century. Well, Bill, you've been very generous with your time today. Forging the Trident certainly fills the gap that you identified at the beginning of our conversation today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Scott Lipkowitz. Thanks for tuning in.